Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. If you got your handouts, I'd like you to turn to then Romans chapter 10, Romans 10. We're going to go through this chapter and try to explain this a little bit. It's sometimes a very confused passage by Calvinists. In verse 1, let's just parse all this out and we'll get to the crux of the matter in, uh, in just a bit. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Okay, so he wants the whole nation to be saved. He, Paul knows that Israel is predicted to be saved, but it's going to be predicted to be saved in the tribulation period. Uh, Paul already knows this based on Zechariah chapter 12. So he knows it's not happening right now. For I bear witness, I, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And uh, I, I agree. If you've ever been to Israel, the Jews are unbelievably zealous for what they're doing. But why are they zealous? Is because they're earning their own righteousness. It's funny that if you go to Israel, you'll see the Hasidics and the Orthodox, and they have those little curls, and they, they're dressed in European garb. Have you ever seen those? And, uh, man, they are devoted to their religion. I mean, you can't get more religious, and those are the word I'm using, than that. It's pretty hardcore, man. If you go in there on, sa- on the Sabbath in the Jewish quarter in the uh, Hasidic or the uh, Orthodox area, dude, uh, pre- if you're walking around the Sabbath, prepare to be stoned. They will stone you. They don't care what the laws are in Israel. They will just flat out stone you to death for messing around on the Sabbath in their area. Um, they're pretty hardcore, man. Really, really hardcore. They have, the Hasidics and the Orthodox have basically turned into, um, uh, detached from the world, like the Amish type of thing, where they're just like totally removed. Um, they do have some, obviously more modern conveniences, but they're really, really, really detached. Um, they're within their own community. But anyway, they have zeal. Now, here's the thing. If a Jew gets saved and they combine that zeal with knowledge, watch out. Watch out. They are a fireball. When a Jew gets saved, they have a zeal in there that goes far beyond a Gentile most of the time. They have a passion. They have an urgency. They have, they have a chutzpah. Okay? They have chutzpah. Uh, and man, they have no problem getting in people's dishes. They have no problem confronting people. They have no problem getting, you know, they're pretty good about cold evangelism. Um, they just go right up to people and this go tater chip, let her rip, man. And, and it's like, wow. Um, they can look, be stronger than goat's breath a lot of it, a lot of times. Um, and I get it. It's because they're so zealous. They're very, very zealous once they know their Messiah. So that zeal gets combined with knowledge. Whoa, watch out. Watch out, man. It is unbelievable to watch. Anyway, verse 3. For they, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, not, or sorry, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? How do you get the righteousness of God? Through Christ, but how? What's the, what's he been talking about? What's the theme? By faith. 
By faith is how you receive the righteousness of God. It is a forensic faith, a, a faith that comes outside of you and given to you. So what they're saying, what he's saying is that the Jews have been ignorant of God's righteousness, but seek their own righteousness. How did that happen? Because Moses never taught that. So what happened? It's the Pharisees are going back to Sophereen and the Tananim before the Pharisees who perverted Judaism. So here's, here's what you have to understand. When you're reading Moses, what you're getting is pure, unadulterated Judaism. Good Judaism, rabbinic, uh, sorry, uh, mosaic Judaism, okay, which maintains salvation is by faith in Yahweh. That it may have not had not not had all the content of the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. They knew he's going to provide for a sacrifice. God was going ultimately going to provide. Even Abraham understood that. And so, mosaic Judaism was correct. It had faith in Yahweh. It was always by faith. But once the, the, the Jews came out of Babylon, and, and it started with the Sophereim, and then it moved into the Tananim, and then the Tananim moved into the Phariseeism, that right there is where they got off, right there after the Babylonian exile. That's how they got onto works-based righteousness all of a sudden. And that's what blinded them. Uh, that's why they, Paul says they're ignorant. They became ignorant at that point in time. Okay. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ kept the law. We are no longer under the law. He satisfied it. And the the ordinances, according to Colossians, have been crucified on the cross. They're nailed to the cross. means he fulfilled it, and it's no longer operative now for you and I. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. So Moses knew about this, right? The man who does the things shall live by them, those things. But those things is a, a direct reference to Leviticus 18.5. That's what, that's what he's quoting. And what Paul is saying is, look, even Moses knew the impossibility of keeping the law. That's why Paul quotes this out of Leviticus 18.5. That was what Moses was saying. Now he says, look, there's two ways of salvation. One way is you keep the law perfectly and you become righteous. But can anyone do that? No. So that way no one really can take except the Messiah, right? He kept the law. So the other one is you have to believe and get a foreign righteousness given to you. That's the only way you're going to do it. And Moses knew that and he's spelling it out way back in Leviticus. And that's what Paul is quoting. He says, my goodness, Moses knew this. Verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. And so his point is, and I know that's, that's, that's kind of a Hebraic way of saying this. He's saying to the Jews, look, by your works, you cannot cause the incarnation. And by your works, you cannot resurrect the Messiah from the dead. Now, why would he have to make that point? Because that's what's necessary for salvation, is you have to have the incarnation, and you have to have the resurrection of the dead, which implies that a sacrifice has been made by the Messiah. And he is saying, do you really think that by your efforts, 
You can accomplish what the Messiah accomplished through his incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection. You guys are out of your mind. He goes, you can't ascend on high and bring him down, nor can you go down there and pull him up out of paradise. Because who did that? He resurrected himself, the Father resurrected him, and the Holy Spirit resurrected him. He left heaven on the assignment to, to do this for us. Only God can do that, and that's Paul's point. He goes, so how many works could you do to cause the incarnation? There's none. I can't. I can't cause it. That's his point. No, nor can any of your works cause the resurrection of the Messiah, which is necessary for your salvation. So he's basically given them an argument they can't argue back to. So it's, it's the answer is no. We, no one can. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith. Not, not Benny Hinn's word of faith. Not Kenneth Copeland's word of faith. Which we preach. What is the word of faith? Is that you're saved by faith alone. You're saved by faith alone. That's what the word of faith is. And notice where it's at. I'll talk about the mouth, I'll talk about the heart in just a bit. But tell me this, because this is going to go for Calvinism. In Calvinism, do you recall that Calvinism teaches that God must make you born again first before you believe? He must ontologically change you and give you a new nature in order for you to believe. He must do something against your will. Right? You follow me on that. And then you can believe. So tell me this. In the Calvinist system, where does faith come from in that system? It comes from God. It's a gift. Are you sure about that? Salvation's a gift to God, but I'm talking, where's faith come from? Y yes, it is a gift given to them, mistakenly from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so faith is generated by God in the Calvinist system. Are you follow me on that? Okay, but what does Paul say faith is at? Where, no, where does it say in the text? What's it say? It says it's near to you, but where is it at? It's here. Now, you're, what comes out of your mouth is what comes is what's in the heart, right? Faith generates from where? God or your heart? The Calvinists, I don't know what they do with that passage. He's telling you that faith comes from the individual. Oh, wait a second. Wait a second. Time out. They say under Calvinism that you're so totally depraved that you can't believe. He has to believe for you because you can't believe. And Paul says, wait a second. It's this close to you. It's right here. Faith is right here from your heart. So tell me what Paul is implying as far as the sin nature. Does the sin nature make a person incapable of believing? No, it doesn't. Yes, we have a sin nature. Yes, we are polluted. Yes, we sin. No doubt about that. No one's arguing with that. But they have went one step further to say... 
In their minds, total depravity means total inability. And Paul is given a different version than what they're saying. Is saying, no, you are a sinner desperately in need of salvation. You're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. But your faith comes from your heart. That's where the center of belief comes. It comes from the, the human, the person. So yes, if the person is can still believe on their own, then total depravity goes out the door. So what would we say? Would you use the term total depravity? Because in their words, total depravity means total inability. No, we would say humans possess a sin nature that has polluted them. No doubt about that. Polluted their their bodies, their soul. It's polluted them, but it has not made them incapable or incapable of believing. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, in that, in that, in that, everyone has the ability to believe. You are not prevented from not, from, from believing. Therefore, the whole, then watch, that starts crumbling. Total inability or total depravity starts crumbling. So if I can, on my own, on my own responsibility, believe or not believe, then then what happens to the rest of their five points? It all comes crumbling down. Because if you can prove that one of the five tulips of Calvinism is completely debunked, the rest of the system goes the way of the dodo. That's just the way it is. Because the whole system rises and falls on its interconnectivity. It's all following the, a man-made system. So if you can debunk one aspect of it, it, it goes out of the water. It can't, it can't hold. Okay. Everyone good on that? Let's continue on. <clears throat> that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this passage is one of the most understood passages because it's not put in order. Paul will actually put the order in verse 10 and in verse 14, but he's just kind of throwing it out there in verse 9. The order of salute, uh, uh, of, of salvation, sorry, is 10 and 14. But why is he making a distinction between a confession of your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The mistake of Calvinism is they will combine both phrases and say they're synonymous, and they are not. In one sense, let me change the word for you because of the Greek. The Greek word with the, the conf- mouth, you confess... And then you have the believe in your heart, but let's verse, go to, go to verse 10 to, to explain this. For with your heart, one believes unto righteousness, right? This is how you become forensically righteous is through belief. But with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That salvation probably should be translated deliverance. It is not referring to how you obtain righteousness. It refers to how you are delivered, which is different. Now, a lot of people, commentators, the Calvinist commentators will combine the two. But Paul, guys, is making a distinction here, especially talking to the Jews. He's discussing something with a Jew, 
That's his audience right now. So why does Paul make a distinction? Because when, uh, when uh, he talks to the Philippine jailer and the guy goes, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He doesn't say anything about confession. Nothing about the, to the Philippian jailer about confession. Why? Is the Philippian jailer Jew or Gentile? He's Gentile. So Paul leaves that out about confession. Again, who's Paul talking about in Romans? Who's he talking to? He's talking to an arguer who's Jewish from the nation of Israel. And he throws in the concept of confession. Huh. In your package, I think you, we have all the way through 14, right? Let me, let, me, let me preview this real quick. Jump to verse 14. Notice the order in verse 14. How then shall they call on him? Who's they? The Jews. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Notice the order. If you haven't believed, how can you call on him? You can't. Notice the order. But So what's the order then? You've got to believe first, and then you can call on him. But call as a Jew, call on him for what? Deliverance. Deliverance from what? Somewhere in that, that soup, yeah. He's in there. You see something's happening here that's been confused? People say, well, you know, to, believe, you know, to be saved, you've got to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Oh, are you adding to salvation? Because when Messiah says, believe in me and you'll have eternal life, he has nothing to mention about confession. Nothing. John 3.16, does it add confession? No. Ah, then Paul is pointing out something different. Because he's talking to a Jew. You notice how the Gentiles never get the context? Why is that? Let me show you something real quick. You all have your Bibles? I have them tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm humbled. Okay. Oh, it's a great way of spinning it, man. Wisdom, right? The Bible says gray hair is a sign of wisdom, right? And I'm, I'm peppered. Oh, John chapter 12. And John chapter 12, verse uh, 42. Now, when you read this passage, what Paul is saying will make sense. And you'll understand that there's a distinction going on in Romans 10. Is everyone there? Let me know. Yeah, verse 42 of John chapter 12. Y'all there? Okay, here we go. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, this is talking about the religious leaders, many believed in him. Yes? When it says believed, does it mean they fake believed or really believed? Really believed. Okay, so when John says they believed in him, it means they, they came to faith in him, okay? But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. What? lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh-oh, we've got a problem here. What did it say? Were they believers? But they wouldn't do something. They won't confess him. 
what is confessing him? There's something going on here that's different for the Jews. Yes, right? They, they didn't want to get in trouble being classed out of society. No doubt about that. But they seek, there were secret believers. Secret believers. What's that? Yeah, that goes along with it because that's the, the idea of identifying with the Messiah and confessing him has to do with taking up your cross and identifying with him in his shame. So when they won't confess him, the biggest hallmark of confession uh, was to publicly identify with the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The switch, the transition was difficult, no doubt about that. I mean, the, the, the rabbis had completely obliterated any thought of Trinitarian theology, which was already in the Bible in the Old Testament anyway. Uh, Elohim is plural, and they, they just totally ignored that. Then you had the two Yahwehs and things of that nature. So that was a harder transition because of what the rabbis did. But the hard part about it is they would get cut off from their society if they publicly identified with the Messiah. Hence, this goes a little bit further. Now, when you read Romans 14, he says, how can they call on him if they haven't believed? What do they need to call on him or confess about him in order to be saved, in order to be delivered? Yes. Yes. And they must not identify any longer with Judaism. They must break away. So confession as you can see in Romans 9, is misinterpreted by Calvinists. They will add that, and they will pour all kinds of different meanings into confession. Well, you've got to walk an aisle. Hey, look, I have an invitation, but that doesn't make you saved if you walk an aisle. It doesn't even make you saved if you pray a prayer. What makes you saved? Believe. That's it. That's it. But see, the Calvinists will add confession. Well, it says right there, confession. Yeah, but come on, man. You don't, don't you know the audience? What is he wanting the Jews to do? He wants them to publicly identify with the Messiah because if they don't, they're not going to be physically delivered from something. 70 AD. And furthermore, the tribulation. So where this language is coming from is Joel chapter 2. So turn to Joel chapter 2. Okay, let's start uh, verse 28. Now, as we read, here's what I want you to identify. Identify the context. What is he talking about in Joel chapter 2? Because this is what Paul is picking up. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters. Who's the sons and daughters? Who's the context here? Who's he talking to? Jews. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Not Benny Hinn, not Marilyn Hickey, not any of those people. This is referring to Israel. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Stop right there. What days? This is referring to Israel's national salvation. How do we know that? Because the same language is used in Zechariah chapter 12. They will mourn for me as, a, as an only child, and I will pour out, basically, the Holy Spirit on them. So Joel is referencing when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Jewish nation in the tribulation. Okay? So that's their context. Let's continue reading in the context. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. What day is that? It's the second coming. It's the parousia, not the rapture. The second coming is for Israel. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, I heard that phrase before. I think Paul the apostle used it. So that's where he got it from. Okay, continue on. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. What deliverance? And as the Lord has said, among the remnant who the, whom the Lord calls. Okay, you're, you're dealing with the Jewish remnant. You're dealing on the Jewish remnant that does what? What did he just say they do? Calls. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How can they call on him if they don't believe? So let's back up. In Joel, he's saying they are calling on the name of the Lord shall be saved, which implies something has already happened in order for them to call on the name of the Lord for deliverance. What has happened to them? They have believed already. So Joel chapter 2 is reporting to you the second aspect of Israel in which they are already saved, and now they are calling on the Lord to physically deliver them from the Antichrist because we're smack dab in the middle of the tribulation, and we're right before the second coming. So the context of Joel chapter 2 is second coming information and the physical deliverance of Israel. Why isn't that known? Why isn't that brought into Romans? Now go back to Romans. Verse 11, you're all there? Okay, verse 11 says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. Refers to two aspects there. If you read Isaiah 28, 16, refers to physical and spiritual deliverance. Verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who, what? Call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's that phrase again. That phrase comes directly from Joel chapter 2. In the context of Joel chapter 2, what does that phrase mean? They've already believed, so what, what does that phrase mean in Joel chapter 2? It means, like I said, physical deliverance. It's who shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be physically delivered. That's the way you interpret that. So Paul's saying that right here to a Jewish believer. So he's relating what will happen in the future to what's happening in the immediate present with the Jewish interlocutor. The Jewish interlocutor, if he will not identify with the Messiah and confess the Messiah, is going to be pounded physically and not be delivered physically from 70 AD. That's Paul's point. That's why he's throwing in confession. That's why he's throwing on who shall call upon the name of the Lord. So all of a sudden, you have a little bit more than what is usually taught in Calvinist circles. They're not bringing in Joel. They're not bringing in Matthew chapter 12. And therefore, you can see how they would add to this. Now, if you read the book of Romans, the, the practical application is this. There's no doubt Paul... Paul is delineating how one gets saved or how one attains righteousness, which is by faith. That's his point, okay? The second thing he's trying to show in the book of Romans is 
how a believer gets physically delivered from judgment. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, this is the same theme in most letters about James, writer of Hebrews, is that believers, because of sin, can be physically disciplined by the Lord. And he is saying, look, the way you physically get delivered, since we're not talking about salvation, since we're all, you already have been saved, it, just because you're saved doesn't mean you can be physically judged by God in this life. You can get pounded by him. You will be disciplined by him. In Hebrews chapter 12 talks about that, right? What father doesn't discipline their own children? And I'm not talking about judgment in the ultimate sense. I'm talking about you get into a protracted area of sin and you start getting out there and you start getting, and you won't come back and you won't repent. Eventually dad's going to spank you, right? That's a simple. That's, that's the whole argument of Hebrews chapter 12 that who thinks they're going to get away with this as a believer? So the book of Romans is not only showing how salvation is by faith, but it's also showing believers how you don't get yourself into being physically judged for sin. So this is why all the admonitions start happening after Romans 8, or even during Romans 8, and then Romans 15, Romans 16, all that stuff. There's admonitions for believers, hey, we don't act that way. We don't do this. We renew our minds, all that kinds of themes. It's to make sure that the believer doesn't introduce the death principle into their life and suffer for it. And this is what James is about. This is what the writer of Hebrews is about. And it's what even First Peter is about, trying to tell the Jews, look, you need to be baptized. Why does Peter have to make that point? First Peter, Second Peter is written to the Jews, Jewish believers who refuse to be baptized. Why? One of the ways you confess Christ is through baptism. That is your public profession is baptism, right? So most people say, well, no, it's coming forward is your public profession. No, it's not. It's you giving your testimony. No, it's not. It is baptism. Baptism is your public profession that you identify with the Messiah. That's why they wouldn't do it. Because if they got baptized, they had to do it on the temple steps, right there on the southern wall, and everybody got to see. And at that point, all the other Jews said, you're identifying with him, we're cutting you off. And that's how it went. So in order to call on the Lord, your personal life, you have to be saved. But why would you call on the Lord? What would be the purpose of calling on him? What is this person, this act doing if you need to call on him? It means this, that you must, you want to be physically delivered from some type of thing you got yourself into. And the ramifications and the consequences of you getting yourself into something that you shouldn't have been in are now playing itself out. And the consequences are coming, and so now you are to go before the Lord, not only confess that and repent of that, but to call upon Him to deliver you from that impending consequence. You can stop the chain reaction once you repent and call upon the name of the Lord before the death principle starts taking over. Now let me read uh, James real quick to show you where the death principle starts happening to people. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, that denial was starting to work on him until he until he uh, re got reinstated. Let's go uh, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God does, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But here, notice 
the progression. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Is it a sin to be tempted? No. It's not a sin to be tempted. That people make that mistake. You can be tempted and not sin. Jesus was tempted, right? Did he sin? No. So don't make the mistake of saying, I'm being tempted, I'm sinning. You're not sinning when you're tempted. It is a temptation, but it's not a sin. It's a sin when you give in to it. Okay? Let's continue on. He is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Okay, so there's the enticement. Then, notice the, the next order. Phase two. When, when desire has conceived, so that's, that's step two, right? When desire is conceived. Step three, it gives birth to sin. Okay? Notice the steps. Now what happens after when it gives birth to sin? So the person actually does the sin. And sin, when it is full grown, notice that phrase, when it is full grown. What do you mean by that? Yes, it doesn't mean like a one-time thing. That if you do a one-time thing and you confess it and repent, then you're, 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 you're golden. You're off to the races. That's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to arrest that. But James is saying, look, dude, you commit the sin, then there's a growth that starts in you. It starts in you. Okay, there you go. Yeah, you become a liberal in school, right? And then it becomes full-blown, you look like Nancy Pelosi at the end of this. They, no. They, they, it, cause it grows in them. So I want you to notice this. When sin is full-grown, then comes the death principle. Did you catch that? So there's going to be some period of time where it's growing inside the person. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. Now, the person can arrest that growth at any point in time. If they repent, confess, and get, get what they do what they need to do or whatever, take the precautions they need to take. But if it's unarrested, if it's just left alone, it's not dealt with, it continues to grow inside the person. And what you'll see is a, a habit start forming, a habitual thing. So once it turns into a habit-forming deal, then you move into the next phrase. And when sin, it is full-grown, look at, notice the, the term, not when it's a baby, but the sin is now developed into a full-grown plant. Then what does it do? Death. Now, does it mean physical death? It can mean physical death, and that's part of the problem that, that James is talking about. Uh, it, but it means the death principle is now being introduced into the believer. Now, what does that mean? Well, the death principle starts working. What that means is, yes, the, the, the believer can suffer physical consequences of things. It also means that their relationships will start to die. It also means that their, their spiritual fervency will start to die. Everything about them starts to die. Because that's what the death principle does. It dies. It kills things. Now, notice what death means in Hebrew. Death means separation. Okay, so the individual starts separating themselves out from good behavior, from going to church. They'll start separating themselves out from uh, healthy relationships, good you know, believers that can encourage them. They'll start pulling back. That's a telltale sign that they're dying inside. They start pulling away from where the help is, and they start isolating. When someone's isolating, that means the death principle is working on them over time. 
Okay? Because when you're in fellowship with one another, you're actually being encouraged and you're helping yourself to even grow and, 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 uh, not get into isolation. Isolation is what kills people, but they do it because the principle inside of them is growing. And if it's unrested, something will happen. To who? Right. It created a separation from them and God. Yeah. So that's a form of death. Because death is separation. They got separated from God. Yes. They did. And, and check this out, Julie. I was reading some stats. So, Like most people that fell off the deep end are not coming back to church ever. They're done. They're not coming back. They, the church lost a significant portion of people, and they're not coming back. And then the other ones, it kind of showed you where they were at. They were fine staying at home. They were quite fine, and they're not coming back. They're going to watch church on TV for the rest of their life, and they're going to miss out on being with the body of Christ. But what is that? That's a death principle. By, I Think about this. I know it sounds crazy, but you coming here tonight, studying the Bible, us being with other believers, is actually giving you life. It gives you life because you're with other people who are alive spiritually. But when you're isolated at home by yourself... You're like a, a coal removed from a, a, a fire. And then what does that coal do when it's not with the fire? It starts getting cold, right? So to, to be with the body is how to light your fire, so to speak. You've got to be with the body in order to keep growing. But it, it's more than that, obviously. Yes, John. Well, they're not intending to be isolating. Yeah, but the, the whole comes down to the intent. I'm not intentionally pulling away from the body of Christ, nor am I pulling away from my spirituality. The society's pulling away from me. That's different. Some of them were isolated, but, but, but hey, Elijah got himself in the hot water one time, and the Lord corrected him big time on that. I'm the only one left. No, you're not. There's 7,000. Now shut up and move on. And it's like, okay, it was just like you start getting like that because he was, he was isolated, but it wasn't because he was isolating. It was because the society of Israel was isolating him. He started feeling that way, but uh, he was wrong, obviously, and the Lord corrected him. But um, that's the difference. Now, back to this death principle, James will mention, look, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I'm already saved. So James is not talking about saving your soul from the flames of fire of, of eternity. He's saying you're going to save yourself by removing yourself from filthiness, removing yourself from sin, you're going to not, let me see the right word if I want to say, uh, your soul, which is, is, is representative of your entirety, will be physically saved. Saved from what? Saved number one from the death principle, but saved number two from God's discipline for the believer. And the consequences of sin, right? Now, again, to, to, to solidify this, again, James, at the end, we'll talk about an admonition in James chapter 5, and that was, that was 121, and this is 519. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner... Wait, wait, let's, let's parse that out. Who's the sinner in the context? Not just a random sinner out there that doesn't know Jesus. The sinner in the context is a brother who wanders from the truth. Another believer, right? Another Christian. 
So the sinner is the other Christian who has wandered from the truth. Now, wandering from the truth could it could be apostasy. It could be they're into some false doctrine, some weird thing, whatever, or or immorality. But let him know that he who turns a sinner, a sinning believer, basically, from the error of his way will save a soul from what? Death. Not eternal death, physical death, and and then obviously cover over a multitude of sins. So you, you can see in James, his whole point is, look, you call out on the Lord to, to rescue you from the, the consequences of sin from you getting ready to get physically disciplined from the Lord and losing your life. Now, here's the deal, man, and and you probably have seen this just on a practical level. Have you seen other believers who get pounded? I have, and sometimes they lose their life. They just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep doing the same thing over, no repentance. They keep moving further and further away from God, further and further away, and eventually they physically die of something and, and, and whether they kill themselves or the, the drugs they're on kill them or whatever they're doing kills them, something happens. They, they do. And you go back to the world, you're, you're going to find a shortened life is what happens. You shorten your life by this if you continue to persist. John. Yeah, that, that kind of suffering is different compared to I caused my own suffering because I'm an idiot. Right? Oh, yeah, 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 you're, you're talking about persecution. So there's a distinction between persecution and, and the consequences of sin. It's just because of the fall. You know, so some people are sick because of the fall. Okay, so good point. So, so, so let me capitalize on that. So let's say you have a relational problem with somebody in your family. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a estranged child, whatever, everyone has them all. We just have them all. They're they're estranged. They can't get their act together. The question then remains this. Are you the problem or are they the problem? Okay? And I know what most people say. I'm not the problem. They are. That might be true. That might be true. And I get it. I mean, some some people just go hog wild and they... They tear it up, man. They just tear it up. And no one did anything to cause that. I get that. People go go loony, and it happens. I get it. But in normal situations, and those are the abnormal ones, obviously. In normal situations, people are contributing to the problem. Okay? People are contributing to the problem. And and one of the problems is they won't own it. Okay, you got to own your share of what you're doing. Okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And, and it might be like 80-20, all right? Or it might be 75-25. I don't know. But someone's someone's not reacting correctly in the situation, obviously. The longer that continues on, the, the longer the problem goes unresolved. Because somebody's not getting, both of the parties are not getting their act straightened out. Whether it's the reaction to the bad behavior or it is actually the bad behavior. But either way, someone's going to have to get their head screwed on straight for something to start working correctly. If not, physical death may not come, but certainly relational death will come. And what is death? Death is separation, right? And so what will start happening, even in marriages, the separation will happen even though the people are married. 
It'll, it'll start growing and growing further and further apart. Or family relationships will start growing further and further apart. And sometimes you have no control over it. I get it, man. I've seen too many of these things. Sometimes you have no control. The other person doesn't want to reconcile. The other person's crazy. I get it. But are you clean with the Lord? That's the issue. Are you clean with the Lord? I've done everything I could. I tried to reconcile. I tried to own what I had. Okay, great. Then the death principle has stopped in your case, and the death principle will continue on in theirs. And watch. They will destroy their lives. They will. They think they're happy, putting it on Facebook and Twitter, how how wonderful, happy they are. Oh, look at me. I'm at Disneyland. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, not at Disneyland because they're closed. Uh, I... I I'm at the beach, if that's open, I don't know. Um, and you see the best of them on this Facebook and Twitter social media, but I know and you know what the Scriptures say, they are dying. Something inside of them is dying. And why didn't he take it away? Stop his pride. It's to stop his pride. So, yeah, the thorn in the flesh, if you have a thorn in the flesh... Um, you have to come to grips with the reality that that thorn is there to keep you humble. Because if you didn't have the thorn, uh, you would, you would lose it. You'd lose a grip. Yeah, we, we would actually, so it was actually a protective mechanism to keep Paul in that state of humility. Um, cause he had been shown heaven. He saw, he saw heaven. He wasn't permitted to say it, he said. But, um, it, it, you know, so whatever your thorn in the flesh is, your thorn in the flesh could be, uh, health, your thorn in the flesh could be, uh, you know, make a lot of money. Your thorn in the flesh could be, I don't know, anything. But if you see your thorn in the flesh as a curse from God, then I can pretty much tell you where you're going to be mentally with Him. Uh, you're going to be resentful, bitter, angry that God won't take something away from you. But God is basically saying, if I don't take something away from you, that means it's meant to humble you. And if I don't have it here, you'll lose a grip. And so what your thorn in the flesh is speaking to you about is that this is necessary to prevent you from straying away from me. Now, how deep that thorn goes and how big that thorn is, is dependent on your pride. Yikes. Go ahead. And here's here, let me bring something to this this point too, because you're hitting on a good point, and it's a point that I have to get my hands around, and um, I have a hard time with this. You're going to do good. You're going to have good intentions. You're going to do everything you can to help people, and they will turn on you like a sheep killing dog. If you're not prepared for that, I would say get prepared, because you're going to see a lot of it in the days to come. You're going to see people who you gave everything to in your family, in your your friendships with them, or your neighbors, people, Christians that you thought were on your side. You're going to see that you gave your life for them. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, forget you. That didn't mean anything to me. Yeah, but I'm your parent. I raised you. Do you know how we paid for your college? We did all this for you. I don't care. You're going to get that because this is what's happening to a lot of people. And they're suffering from the shock. They know people like Nancy Pelosi and, and Joe Biden will do bad things to them. They expect that. 
they do not expect someone so close to them to turn on them like Judas Iscariot. They don't expect that. And that is a shocker. And it blows them out of the water. It sets them back. And they're not prepared for it. And if you're not careful, guys, it can ruin you. It will ruin you if you don't handle it correctly. Because just be prepared. There are plenty of Judas Iscariots coming our way in these last days. And they're going to get right up next to you, like Judas did. And before you know it, that Judas will betray you with a kiss. And you better be prepared. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.